So as we continue this sermon series in the book of Revelation, and for some reason I almost said the book of Acts, I have no clue why that popped in my head in this moment, Um, there is so many different things in this letter that can be very confusing, that can be very challenging for us. And so I'm of the mindset that we need to approach this letter with a lot of humility and with a lot of prayer. And so speaking about prayer, um, on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, it's, uh, March the 22nd, here in our building, uh, we're going to have multiple areas where people can come throughout the day between 10 a.m. and 8 p.m. and just pray. You know, pray for what God is doing in people's lives, pray for the ministry of the church, pray for our, our political leaders, pray for our city, pray for our nation. And if you're joining us kind of at Greenbelt Online and you're not kind of in our city here or you don't, have, you don't you know, feel comfortable coming to the building, that's okay. You can pray from home on Tuesday as well. Just pray for the ministry of our church because we really want to cover everything that we do here as a church family in a lot of prayer. So please join us for that. As I was um, reading uh, the book of Revelation this week and preparing for today's message, um, today's message is all about heaven. We're going to talk about heaven today. We're going to be looking at a few verses from Revelation chapter 4, and then we're going to go through the entirety of Revelation chapter 5. So if you have a Bible with you, you can kind of just flip right to the very back of your Bible and find those chapters there. But when I say the word heaven... What comes to mind? What is your viewpoint of heaven? See, we live in a very, very spiritual culture. Even though I would say we live very far from being a Christian culture, we are still very heavily a spiritual culture. And the language of heaven is everywhere. In every culture, in in every viewpoint, in every faith group, there is some form, some idea of what heaven is. I have talked to many people over many decades on their view of heaven. You know, it's light and it's all full of clouds and it's pretty. Or it's a big giant tree that I can just sit under and chill out and relax Or it's like there's this big gate, and when I approach the gate, my grandparents are going to be there. The dog that I had when I was a little kid is going to be there. My goldfish is going to be there. There's all these different images that we have of heaven. And as followers of Jesus, as people who say that we actually believe that this book that we look at every single week, this Bible, is God's revelation to humanity, does our view of heaven actually line up with what the Bible teaches us. And then the second thing that we have to challenge ourselves with as followers of Jesus is, does my view of heaven actually change my view of the life I'm living today? Does my view of heaven actually impact how I'm living my life today? Because that's what the Apostle John is doing in this letter that we call Revelation, is that he is bringing encouragement to the church. He's encouraging the church that's going through a season of severe, massive persecution. 
And when we say massive persecution, I don't mean stay home, watch Netflix, and wear a mask, even though that sucks and it has been massively inconvenient in many ways. When I say persecution, I mean you're losing your life, you're losing your home, you're losing everything. It's killing you literally. There's this massive persecution happening, and John is writing to build the church up, saying Jesus is victorious. And it's not a future victory. It's a present reality victory. And that present reality victory should encourage you in your faith, regardless of what you are living, regardless of what you are going through. And so we started this series off in week one, and we shared that the the big idea that we had in week one was that book of Revelation, and really all of life, that it's all about Jesus being at the center of the church and of our lives. And then last week, we looked at how the call of the church is to bring refreshment and healing in the name of the Amen. And so today, we're going to go through Revelation 4, Revelation 5, as I've said, and I want us to get this glimpse. I want you to get this picture of heaven. And I realize the division that the book of Revelation causes, and that's okay, It's okay to have some disagreement on the interpretation of some of these verses, but let's make sure that we are being men and women, boys and girls that are holding those differences like this and not holding them like this. Because as soon as you start holding your theological positions like this, what this just makes you want to slug somebody. (laughs) This makes you want to hug somebody or welcome somebody in. So let's make sure that we're looking at it from here. And so I want to just read right away. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And again, I'm going to use Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, again, to show us this tension, to show us this division that could so easily creep into the body of Christ if we're not careful. This is what John writes. So he just finished writing these seven short letters to the churches. These are real, actual places dealing with real, actual problems that Jesus speaks into. And as we saw last week, the language that he uses is very understood by the church that's receiving that message. Because it speaks directly into their context. So after John does that, so after he heard these messages to the seven churches, says this, After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and a voice I had heard, at first heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on me. So John makes this shift now that now he is talking about heaven. And right away, this is where, again, some of this division instantly comes in to the Christian church. What just happened here (laughs) in Revelation chapter 4? See, a lot of Christians, and I'm not going to go deep into this topic today, we're going to cover this topic later on in this series, is a number of people automatically read words that say, come up here, and instantly turn this into a rapture verse. If you're not familiar with what the theological idea of the rapture is, this is this idea that every person who puts their faith in Jesus is going to go straight to heaven and avoid some kind of tribulation that's to come later on. 
And so because we're hearing a come up here before the judgments, before the tribulation, we go, this is a rapture verse. Problem is we need to actually study it in its context of John writing to Jewish people. Of John writing to Jewish Christians, people who understand the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. This isn't a rapture verse. This is a prophetic verse. The words up here of come up here are exactly the same as what we can read about in the Old Testament. We can hear the prophet Ezekiel using the exact, the, hearing the exact same words before receiving a vision from God. There's this language that God uses with his prophets of coming up here. It, it's a state of closeness and, and being able to be receptive to the voice of God. It's not a rapture verse. Now, we're going to talk about the rapture later on. But this is a prophet verse. And see, and that's kind of this challenge that we deal with when we kind of read things like this and we just want to quickly jump to a conclusion what it's about. Again, when we talk about the rapture later on, you're going to learn that the rapture, the whole concept of that is only about 170 years old and came out of kind of the American church. And we're going to look at the background and the history of that later on. But this wasn't taught by the church fathers. This wasn't taught by the apostles. This is a new teaching in the life of the church. And so how do we respond to kind of a new teaching like that? And so this is prophetic language. Paul is receiving direct communication from God. It's affirming the same type of language that's used in the Old Testament. We can see this language in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 12, as just one of many examples. Where Ezekiel writes, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind him a loud rumbling sound as the glory of the Lord rose from the place where it was standing. See, it's this prophetic vision language that John opens up here. We see it again in Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 1, as another example, where Ezekiel says, The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces the east. And when these visions of heaven come, it's not so much that they went physically to heaven, but that somehow there's this movement of God, there's this spiritual movement of God where this revelation comes, this vision comes, and this language is lifted up in the spirit. So don't be super fast to think it means all of us going up to heaven when John is getting a vision here. So that's how this picture of heaven starts. It starts as a vision. It starts as a picture. And then it continues that that John, so he he sees, we read in Revelation chapter 4, that he sees a bunch of thrones surrounding kind of the main throne. He sees some, some worship is happening. He sees different creatures are there. He sees elders, church leaders are there. And, and then it goes into Revelation chapter 5 is where I really want to camp out in our time together today to help us shape our view of heaven in a way that actually changes how you and I live our lives. <laughs> because our view of heaven should have an impact on how you and I live today. So let me read from Revelations chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter here. It's a short chapter. It's only 14 verses here. 
Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1, John continues in this vision of heaven. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nations. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000s. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on, and on the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. See this. I actually literally get goosebumps when I read a text like this. See, one of my defaults uh, kind of in my own personal Christian experience is, um, and I've shared this before, I love big, loud, crazy worship services. And I get everyone's got a different preference, and that's okay. But for me, the idea of being in a stadium with hundreds of thousands of people praising the name of Jesus, praising the name of the Lamb who was slain, and there's fog, and there's flames, and there's a light show, and there's lasers, and there's, you know, all of this cool stuff. For me, honestly, is probably a pretty good picture of heaven, (laughs) according to what we just saw here. Like you literally just read, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000s of worshiping the Lord. This is why I always love to challenge people. You know, kind of worship's not my thing. I prefer the word. 
you better get used to worship. I'm just going to I'm just going to put it out there. You, you, you this is the whole the, you know why we preach the word? I preach the word of God to help you become a better worshipper. We teach the word of God that it should radically impact your posture of worship. Because it's not about my preference. It's not about the style. It's not about the songs we sung. It's not about how loud it was, how quiet it was, and all of these things. It's about the lamb who was slain. <laughs> that he is worthy of honor and glory and praise, and he's worthy to receive everything I have to offer him. Right? This is this picture that we see here. This vision of heaven. I have talked to many people over the years, and I've talked to many Christians over the years who think heaven's going to be boring. The idea of just having a harp and floating among the clouds with little wings and a diaper and shooting arrows at people and seeing my dog who I had to put down a number of years ago and seeing grandma and grandpa, like that's nice, but it's boring. And this picture that we get as we continue through the book of Revelation, we're just getting a tiny glimpse of it right now. But then it's going to be revealed more and more and more and more what God's plan is for humanity. And for me, there is nothing more exciting than what God is revealing in this. And this should bring excitement to the life of the Christian. This should bring excitement to the church. This should bring excitement into our lives. And so what I want to look at is I just want to look at a few things here from this passage to kind of help us get more excited about this picture of heaven. Because as we get more excited about this, then it actually has an outward expression on how you and I live our lives. It has an outward expression of how we approach Sundays. It has an outward expression about how we approach Monday to Friday and to Saturday and every other day. There's no other days. I named them all. That's okay. But this is what it does. It changes how you and I live. And so the first thing that this passage here of Revelation chapter 5 reminds me of is that, again, we have to be... we. Ha- constantly need this reminder as followers of Jesus is that Jesus is the center of all of reality. Jesus is at the center of all of reality. Jesus is not something we add on to our lives when we have time or when it's convenient or when I feel like it. Jesus is at the center of all of reality. See, Revelation chapter 4 starts with John receiving this vision of heaven, and he sees a throne in heaven. And on this throne sits God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the Alpha, the Omega, the one without beginning, the one without end, the one who controls all things. And this throne room is filled with, again, these thrones. There's 24 other thrones that are there. These creatures and these elders are there. And worship is filling this place. And in his right hand, he holds a scroll. Now, in Jewish tradition, because this is where we go, well, what is the scroll? 
Well, in Jewish tradition, scrolls or books or tablets um, often um, mean um, that they contain God's heavenly moral decrees or or people's destinies in life or, or people's eternal destinies. And we can read about that a lot. We're going to see later on in this letter that we're going to read about this thing called the book of life. And people's names are either written in this book or they are not written in this book. And so in the Jewish tradition, this scroll represents um, all of God's knowledge. All of God's plans for humanity. That God is in control, in complete, total control of everything. And the scroll, we get a glimpse of it, that it's, there's, God is in so much control of everything that it's written on both sides. Now, scrolls, traditionally, back then, you didn't write on both sides. You just wrote on one side, you rolled it up, you put a seal on it, and you put the seal on it so that it can only be opened by a specific person that that seal is designated to. And here, this scroll, it's written on both sides. It's completely covered. It's showing the depth of God's will, the depth of God's knowledge, and there's seven seals on it. And as we saw at the beginning of this series, whenever we hear about seven in the book of Revelation, again, with that kind of understanding of the context that it was written in, is that seven means complete. Seven means perfection. So this is the Perfect, complete knowledge and moral standard and will of God for humanity. And no one can look at it. No one can know God's plans. No one can know fully God's morality. No one can know who's loved by God. It's completely, perfectly sealed. And John weeps. He weeps because this knowledge of God is hidden from humanity. That no one can access it. But then this one elder says, John, stop crying. And this Greek word for this weeping, this isn't just a little tear. This is ugly cry crying in the Greek. You ever had like, who's ever ugly cried? Yeah, where you just can't stop. I a couple of years ago, I was I don't know what was going on in my life. It might have been right after we had to put our dog down. It was yeah, it was two. It was twenty twenty. Twenty twenty stunk. You know, the pandemic started. Everything happened. My dog got sick. I had to put my dog down. My mother, my stepmother died. Like it was just a bad, bad, bad year. And I remember I was just kind of tearing up, and Danielle was comforting me. She goes, "Oh, you should just let it out." And so I did. Don't ever ask me to do that again, please. And it was like an ugly crying for four hours. It's exhausting. This is John's posture. When that this beauty of God cannot be known by people. It brings them to the point of ugly crying. And this one elder says, John, stop crying. Because we can know we can know who God is. We can know God's will. We can, be, we can be assured of God's love and life because of the Lion of Judah. That the Lion of Judah 
as victory. That it brings encouragement to John. That John doesn't need to, to weep. It says, John, look, here comes the lion. And again, in Hebrew writing, in Jewish writing, the lion, that's the king of the beast. Right? That's like the ultimate animal. It's the greatest hunter. It, it pictures this incredible warrior. And John is all excited because that's the picture of, of the Messiah that the Jewish people have had, the Lion of Judah, who's going to come and restore their nation and build up their kingdom, free them from the Romans and all of these things. John's pumped. I want to see the lion. And he turns and sees a lamb. And not only a lamb, a lamb is not just a sheep, it's the little sheep. It's the baby sheep. And he sees the lamb as one that has been slaughtered. This NIV translation puts the Greek here as slain. Slain is a nice word that we can say in Sunday school. But the Greek, it's slaughtered. And when you think of the slaughtered lamb, that's not a poster we hang up in Sunday school. The Lion of Judah is the slaughtered lamb. And we get this picture of this slaughtered lamb that's supposed to bring hope to the church. And John sees this in imagery. He sees this slaughtered lamb with seven horns and with seven eyes. Now, again, is this, I remember my son Cameron, when he was little, he had this action Bible. So it was like a comic book version of the Bible. And the book of Revelation in the action Bible is awesome. Because the author of this and the artist of this just took this as flat out literal. And said, this is what it looks like. So you're seeing this slaughtered lamb with seven horns and seven eyes and a sword coming out of its mouth and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, that's cool. But is that actually what it is? We don't know. There's vision language here, but there's also language that speaks to their context that they fully understand. That we might not understand. For example, horns. What does a horn represent in this context? Well, study the Old Testament and we see that a horn represents strength. And here is the Lamb of God with seven horns. And what is seven again? Complete and perfect. The slaughtered lamb has strength that is complete and perfect. And the eyes, what do eyes represent? Again, in this context, eyes represent wisdom. And now here you have the slaughtered lamb with complete and perfect wisdom. So the lion of Judah is the slaughtered lamb whose strength and wisdom is complete to accomplish God's will in humanity. And we see in this picture here of Revelation 5, started in verse in chapter 4 with God sits on the throne and then as God is sitting on the throne, John sees the slain lamb standing in the center of the throne. Now that picture will mess you up because on the throne is seated God the Father. 
And then the slaughtered lamb in his perfect strength, in his perfect wisdom, is also standing in the center of that throne. Again, when people want to say that Jesus isn't God, when people want to say that Jesus is just this nice religious leader and he's teaching us some good moral things that are good to to live by, And sadly, when we even raise our kids in the church and say, we just want you to be a good girl. I just want you to be a good boy. And and we teach moralism more than we teach that the slain lamb is the center of all reality. It changes everything. When that's the posture we take as parents, as Followers of Jesus, that here is this slain lamb. Perfect strength, perfect wisdom, complete, and the full knowledge of God's actions and wisdom and morality in the world. The lamb is worthy to know all of it and to take it and to open it. So we change, this picture here changes our posture of seeing Jesus at the center and control of all of reality, of every single part of my life. The parts that I wish were secret. The parts that I wish no one knew about. (laughs) The parts that I don't like. Jesus is at the complete total center of all of that. That's who he is. That's what we see here. And then what this should drive us to is then to see how this picture of Jesus being at the center of all of reality helps us to see God's incredible, costly grace. That everything about this picture of heaven is about costly grace. It's not about the powerful lion. And I know in my, whole, in my life, just like sometimes in your life, you wish the lion would show up and just deal with things. I wish the lion would just show up and just kind of shake that person and kind of toss them aside for me. That would be awesome. <laughs> but it's not about the lion. It's about the lamb. Right? The lion becomes the lamb. And the lamb is worthy of knowing God's perfect and complete scroll. Like, look here what it says here in verse 9. So in verse 9 here. When people are, when the elders and the creatures are singing this new song, this is their worship of the Lamb. They say, You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, one of the things that we teach as Christians, as Christians who believe in the Bible, is that um, God's grace is completely free. That my sin, that your sin, is forgiven completely and totally, and it didn't cost you anything. It didn't cost you anything. It's the idea of, I've got this credit card bill that's maxed out. 
and I'm, and I'm so poor, I can't even afford to pay the minimal payments on this credit card anymore. And every single time the phone rings, I stress out because it might be a collection agency calling to, to look, for my, look for money from me. And then next month, you open up that credit card bill, and the balance is zero. And you've done nothing. This is what grace is when it comes to our, our saving faith with God. It cost us nothing. But the reality is, and this is why this is so important to remember, because it changes our posture of worship, and it changes our posture of how we live our lives. Even though it cost us nothing, it cost God everything. He paid it. The penalty that should have been on us for sin is put on Jesus instead, is put on the slain lamb. And that is why they worship here, because the people were purchased. I was purchased. You were purchased by the blood of the slaughtered lamb. That from every tribe, from every language, from every people group, that we have come into the family of God, not by anything we've done, but by everything God has done. So this picture of heaven reminds us Jesus is at the center of all of reality. It reminds us that it is costly graced, grace, but thankfully it wasn't costly to us. It's costly to God. And then the third thing that it reminds me of as I study this is that it then equips us as the church to remember that we work from a posture of victory. That the church works from victory. We are not moving towards victory. And there's a slight difference there. See, when you think that the Christian church is moving towards victory, well, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to feel beaten up. It's easy to feel like, oh my goodness, this person's never going to come to, I got this family member, they're never going to come to know Jesus. I've got this family problem, it's never going to be resolved. I got this financial trouble, it's never going to happen. Oh, the country I live in, they're persecuting the church. All of these problems that each and every one of us face from every nation, every language, every people group, all around the world as the body of Christ. When we take a posture that we're moving towards victory, Then we start doing ministry and start living our lives like it depends on us. I need to bring victory. I need to fix this. If only my church would do this, then we could. But the posture that John reminds us is that, no, 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 no. We worship Jesus because he is victorious. Victory is complete and perfect already, but not yet. And that's that tension that we kind of keep falling back into, that we worship that Jesus is victorious. And and I love how in one of my commentary books, it's uh, by a guy written, uh, Daryl Johnson, he, he calls it this. He says, when you realize as followers of Jesus that Jesus is at the center of everything, that, uh, that the church works from victory, and, and these other things, when we realize this, um, that it helps us to live this life called, that he calls the way of the lamb. 
the way of the lamb. And, and, and he describes this way of the lamb. I'm going to explain how he describes it. He describes it in two words. And so what this view of heaven should do for us is that it should bring each of us to a life where we understand that the fullness of our lives come from the way of the lamb. Right? A life of fullness. When you have this view of heaven, it brings a life of fullness, and it comes from the way of the lamb. And so what is the way of the lamb? Two simple words that I want to just leave you with. <laughs> The way of the lamb is foolish and weakness. The way of the lamb is foolishness and weakness. I mean, look at what we see in here, right? We see this wisdom of God, right? This complete plan of God with these seven seals and no one is capable of opening it. No one, no one, not me. Not you, not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, no one, no one, no one. (laughs) And yet we work and we strive and we strive and we work and we beat ourselves up trying to figure out everything, (laughs) trying to solve everything. See, because that's the way of the world, Right? The way of the world is, well, you want leaders that are incredibly elegant, you know, eloquent and, and, and good in speech. And they're very wise and they're very smart and they're very educated. And the Bible actually teaches us that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And the ways of Jesus look foolish to the world. See, we all want the lion, And I think deep down, we all want to be the lion. I know I do in my leadership. I want to be a good leader. I want to be the lion. I want to figure this all out. I want to solve all the problems. But I don't need to take a posture of the lion. I need to take a posture of the lamb. Willing to lay down my life for my enemies. Because that's the posture that Jesus took for you. It's the posture that Jesus took for me, that he laid down his life and was slaughtered for the people who slaughtered him, that he went to the cross completely quiet. He didn't feel the need to defend himself. He didn't feel the need to argue his point. He didn't need to justify who he was as the lion of Judah. It's foolish, (laughs) but it works. It's so countercultural of the world that we live in, that we take a posture that's foolish to the world. We take a posture that looks weak to the world. Or again, we want leaders that are strong and powerful and know their stuff. There's this posture that looks weak to the world. Like even the apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 24. When he talks about Jesus crucified, he calls Jesus crucified the power of God and the wisdom of God. Death on a cross, dying a criminal's death for crimes he didn't commit is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what posture do I take? What posture do we take? We need to take the posture of the way of the lamb. 
If we want to see life change around us, if we want to live a life of fullness, it comes from the way of the lamb. And this comes from this view of how we see heaven. And so I want to close with these words. I want to close with Jesus's words from Matthew chapter five, because Matthew chapter five at the beginning here, starting in verse three, this is a passage that we call the Beatitudes. And here we see Jesus's description of the way of the lamb on what the Christian life looks like in a world that hates you, in a world that's persecuting you, in a world where you will have many trouble. But the way of the lamb is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, when Jesus says, great are your rewards in heaven, what's your picture of heaven? Boring? Or the picture that John gives us in Revelation 4 and 5 and later on in the letter as well. Because suddenly when that's the picture of Jesus being the complete total center of all of reality, that we work from a posture of victory and not from a posture of defeat. When we realize that this free grace that we have received from God to forgive us of our sin cost God everything by sending his son to die on a cross, then suddenly this Beatitudes passage, this way of the lamb doesn't seem so crazy. It actually feels quite doable when we let the Spirit of God work in us. And so maybe today you're hearing these words. And maybe for you, you have never given your life to the Lamb who was slain. If that's you today, whether in this room or joining us at Greenbelt Online, I would just encourage you to turn your heart to the Lamb who was slain for you. Turn your heart to Him. And you can do that real simply right where you are, just by praying a simple prayer saying, Father, forgive me. Forgive my sin. Thank you that the Lion of Judah is also the Lamb who was slain. And he was slain, slaughtered for me. Come into my life. Make me new. If you pray that way today, please come and tell me after the service or at Greenbelt Online. Click that pop-up that shows up. We would love to rejoice and celebrate with you. And for those of us who have done that, whether just today or we've done it decades ago, ask yourself this question. Is my view of heaven changing how I live my life today? Is my view 
of the lamb who was slaughtered, who is at the center of all of reality? Is that driving my decisions? Is it driving my relationships? Is it driving how I do business? Is it driving how I do school? Those are big, tough questions. But I believe when you meet with God with the big questions, he shows up and he answers them. Could take time. You might need some people to come alongside you and help you discern what God is saying. That's why we want you to be in a life group to talk about this stuff with other believers. But let's all of us trust that God truly wants us to live a life of fullness that comes from following the way of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the Lion of Judah and as the Lamb who was slain. That you, we worship you, we praise you, we bring you honor and glory. That you are standing right there in the throne of God the Father, right in the center. And God, forgive me for the times when I've put you on the side. Forgive me, God, when I have made it about me and my wants and my desires and my plans. And Father, help me to keep you at the center at the center of all of my reality, of every part of my life. And God, I pray that for your church, for the bride of Christ, that we would be men, women, boys, and girls that seek you, that want you to be at the center of all things, so that we would worship you and bring you praise and honor and glory as we see you work in us and through us, Father, for your glory. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.